Welcome back to the Movie Morlock program. I'm the Morlock, James Kent, and I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, you did as well. Um, sorry, small, uh, not too fancy. Just me, the wife, and the kids. But there was some entertainment to be had over the weekend that I wanted to talk about. Uh, two things, and that's it, and then we'll be out of here. Uh, the first, I guess, is on uh, Disney+. Plus. It is The Beatles Get Back, and it's the uh, documentary put together by director Peter Jackson. Uh, he is not the director of the original footage, uh, which was director Michael... Uh, Lindsay Hogg, I think, is the name. Uh, mostly like a TV and documentary uh, filmmaker who uh, worked with the Beatles in the past and did some things with the Rolling Stones. And he was hired to create a television special, actually, of for the Beatles with them rehearsing their next album. And then they were going to perform it live. And then, you know, presumably then would finish the uh, show in the studio, though I think they were, at the time they thought they would be rehearsing and that it would be a live album. Um, but things didn't work out. I mean, it's legendary. And there was a film that came out after the Beatles kind of broke up, and it was called Let It Be. It was only an hour and 20 minutes. Um, and it featured you know them putting together this album and then finished up with the famous rooftop mini concert. And when I was a kid, uh, I was a huge, huge Beatles fan, uh, monster Beatles fan. Uh, me and there was this little girl that lived in the town that I lived in at the time. Our name was Elise. And the two of us really bonded over Beatles music. And a lot of times we'd go to her house and we would listen to the albums that her family had that I didn't have. And uh, I remember we'd listen to Abbey Road a lot. And she had an older brother and he was into a lot of music. Like, I remember he was into things like the Sex Pistols and stuff. So this is the late 70s. And uh, other albums that we would look at and not dare listen to. But he knew all sorts of facts that he would feed to Elise. And so she would always have all sorts of information about the Beatles. And I remember if there was any special radio programs about the Beatles, I would listen to them. And, uh, you know, kind of always was hoping that the Beatles would uh, reunite one day. You know, uh, 1979, uh, my family moved to the town that uh, my mom still lives in, and, and actually my sister too, and we had really just moved there. I don't know. I want to say that my sister may have had a sleepover with some of the friends that she was, uh, you know, friends with in her other school, but um, my mom and I, she uh, saw it in the paper in Harvard Square, and this is back again in 1979, the Harvard Square Movie Theater was a revival house um, before they chopped it up into a multiplex. And it was one theater with a balcony, which I think at the time, the balcony might have been closed because it was uh, dangerous. Uh, they had to repair it. And I don't know if they ever did. I, I think that that's where it eventually became these upstairs two theaters were, which were pretty crappy. And then the biggest auditorium was part of this main house. And then they went back into what was uh, theater stage rooms uh, years before. And they turned those into theaters. Uh, so I think it was like a total of five theaters that the Harvard Square Theater became on Church Street, for those who are familiar with Harvard Square. Uh, but anyways, in... 
1979. It was a revival house. Uh, they would show c- continuous showings. So you basically could pay a ticket, watch whatever was playing that day, and you could go in at any time, really, sit down uh, and watch. So, I mean, there were those people that would camp out and just watch the same movies over and over again, but they always played like two, sometimes three. A lot of themes. Uh, this is a tradition that the brattle around the corner would also do and continues to do to this day. And so uh, at the time, uh, for people who you know are familiar with that area, the front, uh, let's sort of Harvard Square, I'm just blanking on the street name there, maybe Mount Auburn Street, that was undergoing a lot of uh, repairs because they were putting in the uh, new Harvard Square uh, train station. And while they were doing these repairs, uh, then they had a temporary uh, – train tea station called uh, Brattle for a while. Uh, so the whole thing was a real mess. But at the time, you'd enter uh, the Harvard Square Theater from the front, not the side on Church Street, which it eventually became when it was a multiplex. Uh, so anyways, that was a boring history for people who were like, I don't even know what Harvard Square is. But this particular night, they were showing uh, Beatles triple feature. They were showing Let It Be, which was the documentary. And then they were also showing uh, Magical Mystery Tour, which was the little like 65-minute BBC TV show. And then they were showing Help. And I had seen none of these. so. Uh, but I was very familiar with the Magical Mystery Tour, uh, the album, because that was the first Beatles album that I purchased because you know my mom had Sgt. Pepper, which was the first Beatles album I ever heard. And then my aunt, she had the White Album and like Rubber Soul you know, I'd hear these, and then of course, uh, like I mentioned, my, my my friend Elise, she had things like Abbey Road and some of the older Beatles albums, like Hard Day's Night and stuff like that. Help, and she and her family—I uh, don't remember what her dad did—but uh, he got uh, temporarily transferred to Italy, and so in the third grade, I guess after the third grade, uh, before the fourth grade started, she moved to Italy. Um, so that was kind of crushing for me because she's a really good friend of mine. But then again, like I said, we we just had moved from that town anyway. Um, but she was such a big Beatles fan that I thought of her when I went to see this triple feature. And my mom and I walked in. Let It Be had already started, uh, but it maybe had only been 10 minutes into the movie and we got seated. And back then, you know, you can imagine this huge crowd of young Harvard students, um, but there was like a lot of young people energy in the theater. And I remember that I didn't really know much about the Beatles and their relationships. I didn't know the the whole story of like John and Yoko. And so I didn't know who Yoko Ono was. And I recall every time she showed up on screen, the whole audience would start making this noise like this. And I had never heard a hissing done in a movie before by an audience. And I would whisper to my mom, like, well, what's going on, you know? And she was like saying, well, that's, uh, that's John Lennon's future wife, Yoko Ono. And I think in between the movies, I'd ask her, like, well, why were people doing that? And, of course, a lot of people, you know, kind of filled with the legends that somehow that Yoko Ono was responsible for the Beatles' breakup. Then, of course, uh, I found, I think as a kid, because I really wasn't familiar with the Let It Be album, uh, the documentary was a little slow. 
Um, and I didn't remember much of it, but then the rooftop sequence at the end, uh, very memorable for me because I think I even knew going in that this was the last time that the Beatles performed in public. You know, this was really just 10 years after that <laughs> when I when I saw this Let It Be movie. And at the time, you know, he still was holding out hope that potentially the Beatles would, you know, reunite. And just the way things have gone over the years with other bands that have broken up, you know, 10 years isn't a lot of time. And there are bands, they do get back together for reunions. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that at some point the Beatles might have come together. Who knows? But then a year later... I remember coming home from school and my mom giving me the news that John Lennon was shot and killed. And it was a shock to me. Um, it was like shattering my world like it did to so many other people. And here I am, just this you know, 10-year-old boy at the time. And one of my heroes was gone and realized that the dream of the Beatles ever getting back together, my favorite group, uh, was never going to happen. Um, and so, you know, it was a pretty devastating thing. So, you know, flash forward all these years, I remember, you know, as an adult kind of wanting to revisit the Let It Be documentary because I heard so many things about it, how the Beatles hated it and how it really just, you know, captured their breakup and all this stuff. And, you know, I was kind of curious to rewatch it and see what I could see. And I'm not so obsessed with the Beatles that I've, you know, delved into the bootleg series from the Let It Be recordings and, you know, kind of uh, detectively poured through all the audio. Oh, I'm not that, you know, insane a fan. But, you know, I'm very familiar with a lot of stuff. I heard that it was not going to ever get a re-release until all the Beatles were gone because they just, uh, Ringo and Paul did not like it, and neither did the other two Beatles. So I was like, all right, it's going to take a long time to see this uh, movie uh, again. Um, unless I was going to hunt down like an old, VHS copy or something. And I wasn't going to do that. So anyways, then I hear this news that director Peter Jackson is going to use his technical wizardry and he's revisited like, you know, all of this footage that was shot for the movie and he's going to put together a new Let It Be documentary, much like he did with the, the World War One photos and, and old footage and bringing that to life. And that was pretty cool. So anxiously awaiting and then of course COVID happens and it was supposed to be I think a year ago they were really gonna release a new movie and it probably would have been much like Let It Be but longer filling in the gaps a little bit and then you know with restored video and audio and then that changed and morphed into sort of a mini series that Disney Plus would be releasing and you know for me hey more more is better and perhaps TV is might be the best place to watch anything that's long form because you can take breaks and whatnot. So I basically was looking forward and had, uh, you know, my mind set on this Thanksgiving weekend. There would be a new part every day. And as much as I could watch this weekend, I would watch. So cutting to the chase, I watched the entire thing with my wife, also a big Beatles fan. And, you know, there's a pretty pretty uh, gripping stuff for someone like me who you know love the Beatles and you know it was kind of an emotional experience because the restoration quality of the images are just so sharp and pristine that it feels at times like this is them live uh, at the age they were and I think part of the emotional aspect is is that I'm now 51 and I'm looking 
almost like back in time and seeing all of these artists uh, and the way they looked, uh, people back then, all of these people are in like, you know, the late 20s. Some people that are in this movie, you know, some of the producers, et cetera, they may be in their early 30s. George Martin is like the oldest. He's like 40, um, basically, still very young. And it's amazing just the amount of talent at play here um, from all areas and everybody coming together and just kind of like when you immerse yourself into something like this, which is clocks in at almost eight hours, you really walk away with an understanding of what this process was to make uh, an album, make music uh, and all that's involved. And if you are interested in that kind of thing and how it was done, this is definitely something that you're going to find interesting. Um, I think for the maybe casual Beatles fan or people don't have a lot of patience, eight hours might be a bit much because part of this process is you see them creating songs. Um, And sometimes they create these songs not the way you might expect a song to get created. And so you're going to see a lot of takes as things progress uh, from ideas to actual songs. Um, Even things like the rooftop concert at the end, which they show in its entirety for the first time. Again, like unless you've listened to the bootleg sessions or maybe had some bootlegs of the raw footage of the movie, you may not have seen or heard the entire rooftop performance. And what's fascinating is that I knew they only played a few songs. And you get those songs. But what I didn't realize is that because they were, again, shooting this uh, for this documentary and they wanted to get things right, they ran through some of these songs a couple times, which, you know, looking at how history unfolded and the fact that these constables came and uh, shut it all down, I think that upstairs on the roof, if they had known what was happening, they may have tried to get in a couple more songs rather than go for a couple more takes. So, you know... It just, again, it unfolded the way it unfolded, and that's kind of the magic uh, because, you know, the project wasn't exactly as it was supposed to to go. Uh, But this eight-hour experience, um, and and again, look, you know, absolutely – some people say less is more, and it certainly could be less. I mean, it could have been six hours. It could have been a two, two, and two, and nobody would have noticed anything missing. I mean, this is really about Peter Jackson just giving you more because it's kind of like this is all this footage that exists, and this is a moment in time, and let's experience it. Let's experience it together, and I think that's really a cool choice, again, if you're really into the Beatles, and you learn – a lot of things that I think it clears up a lot of this. Um, you know, one of the things that's fascinating is the Yoko Ono aspect. You walk away, at least from this experience, in that you don't see Yoko Ono as the catalyst for breaking up the Beatles. Um, as a matter of fact, there's some t- conversations that happen in the movie that talk about this uh, new guy that was going to come in and wanted to be their their manager because Brian Epstein had died. I think that's actually, you really get the sense and understanding that when Brian Epstein died, that was the beginning of the end of the Beatles, that they really needed a manager, that, uh, you know, they may have all been going their own separate ways and starting to like, you know, as they grew up. I mean, in the late 20s, you're, you're not different than you are in your early 20s. And the uh, manager, it, he kind of can get away 
in the middle of the egos if somebody's having a problem with somebody else. Like he can sort things out and he can also tell them, okay, guys, you're going to do this. You're going to do that or, you know, time to wasting or all these things. And so it was definitely coming apart at the seams and you definitely could get different uh, aspects of like Paul McCartney really, really, <laughs> it looked like wanting to make an album and wanting to pull things together. But, you know, he probably had, I think, the most all-around talent as far as, you know, songwriting, etc. But one interesting fact, and I think this becomes very clear in the Get Back documentary, is that Paul McCartney and the rest of the Beatles did not know how to read and write music. That was one of the things that George Martin did so well for arrangement purposes when they would do the studio albums, when you have all the strings and all these like in, in, interesting instrumentations. He could take ideas that were going on in in the lads, that's what they always keep saying this throughout the movies. Hey, lads, in the boys, the lads' heads, and he knew how to musically write them down and then arrange in a way that the Beatles could not. Um, so he, I think, was the communicator. And when Paul's trying to communicate to some of the other band members that he wants a, something a certain way, he can't communicate it necessarily um, formally in music terms. And that can become frustrating. Uh, you can see that with George Harrison, who just seemed to be frustrated with the whole experience. I mean, by that point, he really, he wanted to just do his own thing. Um, and you all, you don't feel like there's anything like that's bad about that. He just, he was getting frustrated with a lot of the stuff. And the fact that when he had songs, and it's funny, I don't, I don't know if I saw it so much in the footage shown, but he would, you know, bring out these songs that were pretty good and you'd hear songs that eventually he would be recording on his own album, All Things Must Past, and you're not getting that kind of reaction from Paul and John like, oh my God, this is great. We should, we got to have this on the album or something. You know, it was almost like, ooh, we don't want to have too many of <laughs> George's songs. And uh, there's this moment that I thought was pretty great in the first episode, towards the end of the first episode. And George has this look on his face that is just so dour. I mean, the guy looks like he's going to break down in tears. And then I even like, we paused it a lot of times so we could talk about things that were going on in the uh, documentary. And I paused and I said, boy, this guy, <laughs> he looks like he's going to have a breakdown. And then no sooner that I say that and, and hit play again, and about a minute or two later, after they finished the song, he like walks out and says, I'm leaving the group. And so it's amazing is that you visually can see this on George Harrison's face that he wants out. Um, and then they get him back, but they have to make concessions uh, that will basically change the trajectory of the project where he wants to record in their new studio. He wants uh, not to travel anywhere for a show. Um, and again, it's really interesting. I think George was the shy one. And after a few years of not performing live, all of them are definitely a little stage fright. Um, each Like Ringo, I think, wants to do things live. Like he's like, yeah, I want to get out in front of an audience, feel that energy. And I think even John Lennon kind of does. But Paul McCartney and George Harrison don't really seem to want to do that. So that's kind of fascinating. Um, and yet and that it has a big payoff in the end because when they are on the rooftop and they're performing and you suddenly see the energy of like crowds below and they actually look over and can see the crowds and you see like different guys – climbing up on rooftops uh, from wherever they might have been working to check it out. They seem to be energized, the Beatles, uh, by the fact that they're performing again. And there's like a look of joy on their faces. And that's really exciting 
to see. And it's again, it's also like what could have been if they had decided to stay together. But there's so many factors that were pulling them apart. Um, then there's also great stuff where you know there's a lot of talk about Billy Preston, great singer and songwriter and keyboardist. He happened to be doing some TV appearances over in England because he would a session guy and he would perform for different groups and he was actually doing a TV thing with uh, Lulu. She had a show and. He was friends with the Beatles from when he was a teenager and touring with Little Richard, and, and I think. And so uh, he stops by to say hello. But pretty quickly, they were realizing they had some piano parts that they wanted in their performances. And, of course, they were their goal was to try to do these things live or even studio live without editing and overdubs, which, of course, um, eventually they realized they couldn't. And that's where the album Let It Be you know, work with Phil Spector, who helped produce uh, or overproduce lots of the songs and added strings and other instrumentation to them and try to make these things work in a different way. Uh, but again, they couldn't play the piano and do their part. So Billy Preston comes in. And what's so great when you see it unfold in this longer documentary is that he shows up and instantly there's a different energy going on with the Beatles. I mean, he just perks everything up. And sometimes you see that moment where you're you're witnessing something exciting happening. And you can also see the reaction on, say, like a John Lennon's face and a Paul McCartney. And this unspoken look like, holy crap, this is great. And you really appreciate the genius of some of these musicians that they can come in. It's like they really do speak a language that is different than, um, you know, spoken language because Billy Preston, it's like, what's amazing. He looks like this young kid. And then you look up his age and you discover, shit, this guy was a young kid. He was only 23. And he sits down and he barely knows anything that they're playing or whatever. And he is able to just go to town on this Hammond organ and pick everything up. I mean, it's just, you know, like, how does somebody do that and add their own contributions and know exactly, you know, how to kind of put the right sound and the right notes in. And it's great. And you, and you get that sense too, with people like Ringo, he'll sit there while they're just coming up with something and he gets an idea for what the drum beat should be. And then you also through this documentary you really see what a great guitar player say like john lennon was and then you get to understand like george harrison and what an amazing bassist paul mccartney is and the fact is the guy like he could play the drums he could play regular guitar he could play bass guitar he could play the piano i mean the guy was insane and then you how you see him suddenly get an idea in his head for something in the studio and he's just kind of humming and then he starts kind of playing around and next thing you know the idea for get back some kind of sort of formulates and all these other things too, like George Harrison brings in a couple of songs that he was working on or ideas came from the night before. And, and then again, Peter Jackson, as the director of this project, he formulates things in a very interesting manner. He creates sort of a clock is ticking atmosphere where you know exactly when they're supposed to do live shows, when they're supposed to finish in the studio because Ringo Starr was going to be acting in this movie called The Magic Christian with Peter Sellers. So they were going to lose him. So there's a very like finite amount of time that they have to do this. And Jackson frames things day by day. And so you actually see the order of how do these things unfold in real time during a day and what do they do that particular day? So it builds a lot of momentum. And when he's able to tie in exact moments in time 
and you, the audience, can keep it straight. It's very exciting. So again, I think that there could be a case made for the way that we digest these bingeable shows and that it could have been spread over eight parts, eight one-hour parts or something. Um, I think that would have been easy to digest, but then maybe people would lose the, like, you know, kind of momentum, like, oh, yeah, I've got to get back and finish watching that. I'm only on part three or four, whereas you get these three parts and you do get lost a little bit. If you get into this thing, next thing you know, you're like, whoa, I've been watching this thing for two and a half hours. I can't believe it. Um, So, yeah, we were energized. We watched the whole first part the first night. We watched the first two hours of the second part. That's the longest part. It's almost three hours, the second part. And then we didn't watch anything on Saturday. And I'll get to that in a second. And then Sunday, uh, yesterday afternoon, we watched the rest of the thing. We watched the last 50 minutes of part two and then all of part three, which is about two hours and 18 minutes. And part three has the whole entire rooftop concert. And what's great, now this is sort of my, I guess my little things to pick on this documentary because i'm a purist is that he made a decision uh the whole film was shot in 16 millimeter uh, because again it was going to be a tv special so that was the format they weren't shooting it in 35 16 millimeter is a square format um there is something called super 16 which you can do and the cameras are retrofitted where they make extra use of the negative space that you might have a sound put on And it allows you to blow that up a little bit better. You just get a little bit more of an image that's a little bit more rectangle, a little bit more like 35. So it's a little less grainy. Um, What they did in the original movie for Let It Be was kind of a sin is they took, made a blow up uh, 35 and a really bad one, I guess. And it was very grainy. And, you know, you got a lot of room cut off. Now, what Peter Jackson, he could have restored everything and he could have kept it in the 16 millimeter aspect ratio, um, which was sort of like a 133, 133, 137, something like that, to one. Uh, so it was kind of more of that square look. And a lot of films are doing that these days. You see a lot of things on streaming, which are now in that more original Academy ratio. Uh, but he made the decision for all the studio stuff to do it in the you know more rectangular frame. He did it like at a 166 to one. So it wouldn't be so much cropping that would have to be done. And I think because of the magic of his digital wizardry, they were able to decide more arbitrarily, like kind of instead of, you know, well, we just have to go with this one consistent uh, marking for cropping. I think that they had a lot of selection that they could manipulate up and down. So you get the best possible frame and still have that rectangular. And so it wasn't bothersome. But once you're aware of the fact that you know, it could have been the other ratio and you could have had the entire full frame. You know, I'm a little bit like, well, that's a choice, but I I think that, you know, and maybe it was because for eight hours, you don't, maybe most people wouldn't want to watch something that's in the old square format, format with the left and the right bars of black. I would have been fine with that, but it's still, it, it, was, it was a choice he made and it didn't distract me. It was good. However, and I think this was great when they get to the rooftop concert, he keeps everything in its original aspect ratio. And so you're really getting that full experience of the time that they started to the time that the police shut them down. And it's about 40 minutes that it takes. Uh, They do a lot of great stalling tactics to keep the constables at bay while they're still recording until they can possibly do the very last minute. It's really, it's kind of fun. And then Jackson 
edits multi cameras. So you see multi things happening on the screen at the same time. Uh, so you, cause there was so many cameras shooting on this rooftop. I think they had like eight cameras. So it was well covered. And so Jackson makes use of the fact that there was so much footage and really a lot of energy in this final part. Um, so again, just as a huge Beatles fan, Really, really appreciated watching this, and I definitely recommend it. If you got the Disney Plus, if you don't, and you're like, "Oh, but I gotta watch these Beatles," make sure you have enough time, and then maybe you get a subscription for a free subscription for a month or something to try Disney out so you can watch this. Um, it, it's well worth it. Like I said, if you're into the Beatles, it's great. And again, I don't know how you'd watch this otherwise if you don't have the Disney Plus. I don't know if they're gonna release like you know Blu-rays of it later or what, but definitely high recommendation. Okay, so now. The other piece of entertainment, uh, Saturday, why we didn't watch the Beatles on Saturday is I took a journey. I live about four and a half to five hours away from New York City, so I don't get to go to the New York City that often. It's a, you know, it's a long drive, uh, and I say four and a half to five because it really depends on how much you stop and if there's any traffic. So usually it can take, you can get in to New York City from my house you know, about four and a half hours with a, with a quick couple of quick stops like to get gas and go to the bathroom and whatnot, and if you go early enough. You get in before the traffic. Going home, it's usually more pushing towards five hours because you have to get out of New York City, which always, no matter what, it always takes a little time. Just getting back into whatever tunnel or bridge you're taking, there's just a lot of traffic. And so that is kind of like, eh. But I wanted to go to New York City because Paul Thomas Anderson's newest film, Licorice Pizza, it's going to be in theaters everywhere on December 25th, uh, just a few weeks from now on Christmas. But they decided to do things that are a little bit old school, uh, a little bit of a platform release where a month earlier in New York and LA, they are releasing it in just a few theaters and make it a little extra special. They're showing it in 70 millimeter for those theaters that are big and can show things on film and have a 70 millimeter projector. I like this. I like this approach because it kind of makes it more special. It says, hey, you know what? If you want to go see this movie a month before anybody else, we're going to show it to you in a really big format. And so I looked at kind of my calendar, my possible ways that I could see Licorice Pizza when it does come out in December. And, you know, by then, uh, me living in Vermont, who knows what the weather's going to be like and with all that's going on, it's just I looked at the possibility of me seeing it even in a regular theater could be limited. Uh, but I say since I live in about an hour from the closest theater that will ever be showing licorice pizza when it does come out, I'm like, well, I could wait and see it projected digitally. I could wait even longer and just wait till I can see it streaming at my house or I can make a trip to see it in 70 millimeter. I chose that. So I got up really early. Like, oh, that was one of the things I looked at. When, when would it be playing? And it actually was playing at a very advantageous time slot. They actually, this theater, the Village East in lower Manhattan. And it's funny, it's on, uh, I think it's like Second Avenue and the corner of Second Avenue and East 12th Street is where the Village East is. And it was an old Hebrew theater uh, when it first opened and in a performance theater. And then it was shuttered for a lot of years. And in 1990, and I'll never forget this, it was uh, February 14th, 1990, it reopened as a movie theater, a multiplex with a huge, big um, house and then some smaller houses. And I know this because 
when I was at NYU and I was living with Teal for a year, we lived on the corner of 2nd Avenue and East 12th Street, completely diagonal from the Village East Theater. And so we saw when they were opening it and it was exciting. And we lived above this bar. At the time, it was called the Dragon Bar. It's probably been through like 20 iterations. It's some kind of brew house right now. And there was a tiny little uh, little alcove above the bar that you could hang out with. And it was probably not uh, to code. And since then, like any railings for protection has been taken away so people won't go up there. Uh, but you could open up your window to your apartment and you could step out. And so we had own, sort of like our own little private deck. And from that deck, we could hang out and we could see when movies were starting and playing. And back then, you know, there was no online ticket sales or anything in 1990. You just saw, oh, a crowd's forming. We should go over there now. Um, we could buy our tickets early because we could go in the afternoon, buy our tickets for that night show. And then we'd just go over when it looked like we should to get a good seat. So I always remember the Village East. I don't remember them ever showing 70 millimeter at the time, but they do have a 70 millimeter projector. And I went... Before the pandemic had happened, the summer that uh, of 2019, when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was out, I went and saw it in 70 millimeter at that theater. Um, it's not my favorite theater. I mean, and, you know, it was pretty good screen and stuff. I just I think that projection at say the Somerville Theater is is bar none the best, and then the Coolidge Corner in Boston is pretty good too, and they both are just beautiful. Uh, houses. So, you know, my druthers would be to see Licorice Pizza in one of those two venues. It wasn't playing at either spot uh, yet. It's going to play in 70 millimeter at the Coolidge Corner in, on December 25th. So if you live in the Boston area in a month, you could go see it there. But I went uh, to a 10 a.m. show. Uh, I thought that was great. So I was like, oh, you know what? I go there. It may not be that busy. And of course, you know, with COVID, it might be a little bit safer or I'll be more comfortable. Uh, they also required people to wear masks and you had to show proof of vaccination. So, you know, that's about as safe as I guess you're going to be able to get if you decide to go to a movie theater. But I felt, you know, pretty good about that. But it meant I had to get up really early. So I got up at four in the morning um, and we had had a snowstorm here in Vermont on uh, day after Thanksgiving, which was unexpected. We got a lot more in my particular area. So I had to contend with that. And uh, I, so I got up early even earlier than I might have just because I didn't know how long it would take till I could get out of the area of Vermont where there'd be snow until I could get onto the highway where it would be less snow. Um, so, you know, got out there four in the morning, everything went pretty smooth. I actually got into New York City, you know, a lot earlier, like at nine o'clock in the morning. And I parked at a spot that I know in the uh, West Village that now, always seems to have parking spaces available on the weekends and there's no meters and stuff. So uh, I parked there, walked over, waited to get in. Uh, was not, wasn't a sellout or anything. It was 10 in the morning, but uh, you know, there was a decent amount of people there, but not so much that you felt crowded. No one was sitting right next to me or anything. Um, so I went to see this licorice pizza movie. And, you know, first I'll talk about the 70 millimeter aspect of it. Just first things first. The real question I think people would have is, well, why would why is it even necessary to see this thing in 70 millimeter? And I would say it isn't. You certainly don't have to. Um, this is really just a nice extra touch for those who want a different experience. And it really harkens back to when these big movies would show in L.A. and New York uh, back in the day. And there would always be at the big houses, you get 70 millimeter. And one advantage is if you have a big house, and I'm talking about the, the cinema, you know, if you have like 500 or more seats, 
you're usually in a big auditorium with a big screen, but also pretty far from the projection booth. So if you're looking for a lot of extra light and brightness hitting the screen in a sharp image, that 70 millimeter is double the size of a 30 millimeter film strip. So it's going to be able to really throw a lot of light onto that screen and a really good image. So that's, that's, that's number one. Number two used to be the sound, not so much of a big difference maker now because everything is digital, but they do do a special uh, mix, partly because they know if you can show 70 millimeter, you probably have a sound system that was set up for that type of thing. And so they usually have like a six channel DTS track. And again, they build these digital mixes for what they think most cinemas are capable of. So if you're just going to be showing what's called like the D cinema package or whatever, a digital cinema package, you're going to get a sort of digital cinema 5.1, 7.1 mix and audio will be fixed probably to handle what they think most speakers can handle. So if you know that you're giving them the 70 millimeter mix, it's going to be a little bit more robust. It's going to try to duplicate the way you might have experienced these movies back when it was on a mag strip. Uh, so that's an advantage that you can enjoy. And then again, like the picture quality, it's kind of like watching a film and then you stick some like sharpening glasses on and you suddenly for the first time you didn't realize how bad your eyesight was. So it's just like a little bit sharper. And, you know, that can be really good for big visual extravagances. But in a thing like this licorice pizza, it's just a way to really experience the details of the movie a little bit sharper. Uh, you may not even notice how much sharper it is unless suddenly you projected a 35 millimeter print right next to it and you're just like, whoa, this is like night and day. Um, or if you even had the three stacked up, like what a digital cinema screen would look like, 35 and then the 70, and then you'd really see the difference. I notice it because I've seen some, so many 70 millimeter movies um, and it's always a treat and you notice it more right at the beginning because it's just, it's just very more intense and then you just ease into it and then you're not really, you know, noticing it so much anymore. But one of the things I think that Paul Thomas Anderson likes, why he's out of like the last four movies he's made, starting with The Master, which he shot in 70 and it's funny, it's not a big scope film, it's not a big widescreen movie, but he shot it because of the sharpness. So you get the sharpness of the fact that you shot it in 70 and then projected in 70, forget it. It's very intense. So you were looking for a certain intensity and emotional response. That's what you get when you see The Master in 70 millimeter. Uh, next film, Inherent Vice, he shot in 35 and for all intents and purposes, you know, there were 35 millimeter prints shown in theaters that could show it. When Inherent Vice came out, I did go, I was still in Boston at the time or in Massachusetts, and I went to the Coolidge Corner Theater. They were showing 35 millimeter. And that was great to see it in 35. You know, it shouldn't have been anything special. That's the way movies for years were just shown in 35, but it was exciting. And there was a known print. One print in LA ran unannounced. I think it was actually maybe at the Cinerama Dome in 70 millimeter. I think there was only one print made. And again, it was probably made because it was going to show in a big house and it looks better. And, you know, I think Paul Thomas Anderson personally just likes it. He's probably someone like myself 
Uh, it's funny because he's like two days older than me. I think he's born two days before me in, in 1970. And so he has those memories of just the experience of where it's important. I'm going to see something in 70 millimeter. But there's another thing, and this is what happened with uh, Phantom Thread. He did a, a bunch of prints of 70 millimeter for that. And partly was because he was going for a certain look. And the look that digital gave him didn't really achieve what he wanted. And even 35, the film stocks, and you know, you don't get as many, you know, when you're not doing it every day, um, you know, they're not printing every release on 35 millimeter, a lot of those labs close, there's only a few that even print 35, the stocks are almost too good now. And that's great, you know, it gives you a good look, but it doesn't give you the look of what you might be going after if you're doing something that's of a retro movie. And so like Phantom Threat takes place in the 50s, and he just is an experimentation, another way to experience the movie. He had it transferred to 70 millimeter, and the film stocks for 70 millimeter just happen to recreate chemically a look that's more akin. It gives a feeling of that yesteryear, um, just the, the quality of the colors and softness and the textures. Uh, so I saw Phantom Thread in 70 millimeter at the Coolidge Corner. I drove in for that, and it really was great. Um, and I could tell just like the, just the elegance uh, and the textures of the costumes, etc. So again, we have Licorice Pizza. It takes place in 1973. So I didn't even know that. I thought it was like late 70s or something. But it takes place in 1973, and there's a lot of events that happen in Encino, which is the Valley of California, where it's most of the action of this movie takes place. And I think to capture filmically the look that he was going for the 70 millimeter film stock achieves that it chemically gives this film a dated look that's great uh because uh, you don't notice things like costumes and wigs or shiny cars the way you might in a digital presentation where it looks like you're putting on a show to make something look like 1973 you are kind of fooled a little bit into feeling like this is kind of 1973 and I think the 70 millimeter helps that. So there's a great reason if you can see it in 70 to see it in 70. And I think it'll be opening up in a few more venues in 70 millimeter once uh, Christmas rolls around. So it will be playing again in Boston at the Coolidge Corner in 70 millimeter. It will also be playing in 70 millimeter at the Music Box uh, Theater in Chicago. Uh, it's a legendary theater. So they're also having like a kind of a sneak preview of it, I think, coming up in a, in a week or two in 70 millimeter. So look out for that. Again, if you're in these areas, uh, and then search it out. There may be, I think there's a 70 millimeter house in Portland. Possibly they'll be showing it there. Uh, maybe in Arizona, the Loft Cinema down in Tucson also has 70 millimeter capabilities. So, you know, there may be some other opportunities. And, you know, do you have to like make a five hour trek to New York City like I did for it? Maybe not. But if you can, that's great. And at the very least, if you can see it in 35 millimeter, that's that's the way to go. And that's how I'm kind of approaching movies these days, that if the ones that I really, really am looking forward to, those are the ones I'm going to have to make a, some kind of effort to go see if I want to see it in theater because I don't have a town theater anymore. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make that effort. You know, So I really would like to see House of Gucci, and I hope to get there to see it in the theater. That'll be like an hour drive. And then... In a couple of weeks, uh, Spielberg's West Side Story, that shot on film, I am curious. It's a big screen movie to me or it's not at all. So I'm going to try to go to the theater to see that. Those might be the last uh, things I see in the theater this year. Um, so stay tuned. 
And as far as the movie Lic- Licorice Pizza, uh, I think that we'll be revisiting that on the program when uh, some guests I can get on can see the movie and we can talk about it. Like maybe uh, Shannon, if she is able to see it, uh, we can just have a real discussion about the movie. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, it's a movie that it's it's an odd one, but then Paul Thomas Anderson movies are always kind of odd. It doesn't have a strong plot. So people are looking for that they're not going to find it in this movie. It's more of a hangout movie. Um, I mean, it makes Once Upon a Time in Hollywood look like it has a big plot. <laughs> There's, it's not a lot of plot here. And it really involves a teenage boy who is an actor, um, but he's also sort of an entrepreneur. And he's been forced in this world of the 70s to kind of, I don't know, forge his own path. He seems to be wiser than his years, which is, I think is kind of a trope, the old teenage boy wiser than his years, and he meets an older woman, right? So there's kind of like that whole male fantasy, male gaze kind of, oh, younger boy, older woman, but that's okay, right? Trope going on in the film. But I think that Paul Anderson does some interesting things there where the older woman in this case is played by musician uh, Alana Haim, and the Haim sisters have an association with Anderson. He likes their work, and he's done several videos with them, and so he's friends with them. And he thought of her when he wrote this movie, and he ends up casting her and her two sisters and their mom and dad as a family in this movie. Uh, the rest of the Haims don't have a ton of screen time, but they do support Alana. And I would say that if you walk away from this movie with anything, is that Alana Haim is a star, This is a star-making performance, and it's a great performance. It's very interesting because ultimately, I think what the movie really is, it's about, it's a woman in 1973 trying to kind of find a way to get into adulthood. She doesn't feel very adult, and she's desperately trying to forge a path. And sometimes in the early 70s, there wasn't a lot. And I think that the encounter she has with many of the males in this movie kind of prove that point of male toxicity at different levels. Um, And you see that in a restaurant owner who uh, gets kind of PR and menu work and other advertising from the boy and his mom. They run a sort of a a PR form and uh, along with all these other duties. And and the son is played by the late uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. Uh, So this is his debut performance. And and he's quite good, too. He's a discovery. And it looks like he could potentially have those same acting chops that his father does. Um, But this uh, restaurant owner, he is uh, kind of a classic clueless and racist. He owns an Asian restaurant and seems to always be uh, hooking up or married to the women who work there, they become his wife and they are not from America and they don't even speak English. And he really condescends and talks down to them and kind of actually almost talks in sort of a broken, awful Asian accent to them as if that's going to somehow make them understand him. Uh, There's some controversy about that. I think that there's some people that find this kind of a horrific look and it's that it somehow is played for laughs and that shame on Paul Thomas Anderson. I, I kind of look at this. I think it's a, it's a it's a note that is definitely valid that he could have maybe avoided all this altogether. But I think that sometimes a director like Anderson doesn't want to avoid. This is something that you can obviously look at and say, this is horrific. But there's some other aspects that are going on in this movie, the way males treat women that you may gloss over because they're so familiar to you and they don't stand out as much as these particular scenes do. And they're just as horrific in a way. And I think that what Anderson is balancing is the fact that the best 
male in the group that Alana Haim's character encounters could be this 15-year-old because maybe he hasn't quite been uh, tainted uh, by the stain of uh, male toxicity and that he might be somebody that actually is genuine. Um, And so she falls for this guy, but there is a problem that she's at least 10 years older than him. And I say that because... She says she's 25 throughout the movie. In real life, Alana Haim is now 29, but she was 28 when she filmed it. And there is a scene that happens where her character slips up and says that she's 28. And then she corrects herself real fast and says 25. And it's a very brief moment, but it seems to be telling. Um, and I think that the scene I've read about is improv and I think she screwed up and covered. But he kept it in there because there's something very interesting about her character's journey. And I think it's not uh, wrong to say that she probably is 28 and so she's even older than the 25 she's tr- trying to be and in 1973 if you were 28 you were probably married with a family as a woman and that's just how it was for most so here's a character where she just i don't know if she has arrested development but she is hanging out with like teenagers and she's just, she can't move into adulthood. She tries very hard. And a lot of it's through these jobs or like trying to, you know, meet older men. And it's an interesting journey. And she keeps coming back to this kid who seems to be older than his years. And it's a kind of a sweet movie in many ways. And it's really enjoyable. There's a lot of stuff I'm leaving out because I don't want to really get into spoilers. Just saying that I, I found so much of this enjoyable, even though at times I was wondering, what, where, where, where is this all going? Um, I, I even thought that some of the scenes in the movie just seemed like strung together scenes that maybe Anderson got inspired by doing something fun. I, I learned later, and it made a lot of sense, that Philip Timur Hoffman's son in the movie, his character, Gary, he's an actor, but he's based on a real person that Paul Thomas Anderson knows, a guy who was a childhood actor and then grew up to be sort of an entrepreneur, had a business that was like uh, Gary's in the movie, and eventually, uh, through a friendship with Tom Hanks, formed Playtone, which is the Tom Hanks movie company. So a lot of the stories that this guy would tell Paul Thomas Anderson are stories that he took and embellished and turned into this movie. So I think that was fascinating because you're going to see little things that happen in this movie that feel like you can't just make some of this stuff up, right? Like, where would you get these ideas? And so uh, that's kind of uh, amusing. Um, And then another thing is that at some point, Bradley Cooper shows up as the real film producer and one-time hairdresser, uh, Lothario. Uh, They made a movie, Shampoo, based on his character. And also, he was involved with Barbara Streisand for many years, but this guy, John Peters. And why why and how he shows up in the movie and what his character does, I mean, it's it's just so crazy. And Bradley Cooper just seems to be having a blast doing it. And it's just really bonkers. I mean, it really is kind of this bonkers performance in this movie. And that's where I guess the movie's a little bit uneven, uh, but that's part of the joy. Uh, There hasn't been a lot, I think, to smile about sometimes in movies. And I think sometimes, you know, look, even setting something in 1973, there are things and events that happen in this movie that kind of remind you that no matter where in history you are, there's stuff that kind of sucks and you have to go through. And that's what we're going through right now with this pandemic. It just seems to be going on forever. Everybody has their moments where you can forget about it for a while, then you're reminded. Uh, you know, we have this new variant that's out there. Um, and it's just like, you know, it can be exhausting. So you watch a movie like this, and it's just kind of pure fun. Um, it's not heavy, 
but there's definitely underlying themes that you can poke through and get. And while I really wasn't sure, like I think I, I thought I liked it, but I really wasn't sure like how great or not great is this movie, but I had a five-hour drive back home and it just constantly, the movie was playing through my head and um, there's a great soundtrack. It's very very much not like, oh, here are the hits from 1970 they were going to play. It's just filled with a lot of interesting music and stuff that just feels like it belongs in this movie. Um, the movie has an er energy and a spirit. And also, this journey, I'm never, I'm not only never bored in the movie, but I really, when it's over, it is kind of like, oh, it's over. I really'd like to see more. But it's a great romance. It's a really romance film. You don't get a lot of those these days where you have these characters and you really just buy the romance. Uh, it has similarities to Punch Drunk Love in a way where that has a romance and that's really what the movie's about more than any big plot. The film also has a little bit of an inherent vice vibe. Uh, you know, Anderson, he's now made as many feature films as Quentin Tarantino. Unlike Quentin Tarantino, I feel like has a very, very specific style. Anderson definitely does things, and there's similarities in all his movies, but he also is a guy that from one movie to the next, you're not sure what you're going to get from him. Um, and I like that. You know, This maybe has more in common with like The Inherent Vice, Punch Drunk Love, Boogie Nights, maybe a little Magnolia, but it's certainly nothing like There Will Be Blood or The Master, for instance. You know, So... It, it it or 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 Phantom Thread. I mean, those movies are are different. Even though there's a lot of romances going on, uh, Phantom Thread has a very weird romance. Uh, this movie has a very weird romance, and Heron Vice has some weird romances in it. So you know, there's definitely some things going on. Uh, but it's a very sweet natured movie, I think, and I think people will enjoy it when they see it. So I think people should try to check it out. So anyways, that's it. I can't believe I've talked this long, um, but a uh, lot to say in just two movies. And uh, well, one's not a movie, but one's a documentary. But anyways, that's it for now. Um, until I see something else, we'll stay tuned. All right. So thank you for listening to the movie Warlock. And again, hope you check out Beatles Get Back. If you got Disney Plus, maybe get a subscription just for a month. You can check it out. If you don't have Disney Plus, because again, if you don't have kids, why would you have Disney Plus, I guess? And then also good recommendation on Licorice Pizza. Again, one of the great performances I've seen in many years is Alana Haim. A real, real knocks my socks off kind of performance. And also Seymour Hoffman's kid, great too. But to me, it's Alana Haim. It's just you can't take her your eyes off her. She just she's doing so many things. You think that she was uh, making movies for years, and she's not. She's this is her first movie, and she's just terrific in it. So again, Licorice Pizza. It's a weird name. Um, but it all kind of makes sense, just like an American Graffiti. You know, it's like weird names never said in the movie. What does it mean? I don't know, but it just kind of captures it. I think that's how I look at Licorice Pizza. It's another movie that just kind of captures the vibe. All right, everyone. This is the Movie Morlock, James Kent, saying sign off. Goodbye. Uh, also, reach out to me at moviemorlock at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram. You know, find me on the places. Tell your friends about the uh, the movie Morlock. Let's all have a good time. Bye. Now.